Simmons in particular offers younger audiences something surprising in the sense that I think it offers them a kind of nostalgia for the past that they didn't experience, that they're seeing this kind of kinder, gentler time where, you know, people just hung out and there were no phones and you just spent all this time with your friends. And I think that's especially appealing to younger audiences for whom, you know, their friends are often their whole world, this idea that yeah, I'm going to be an adult. Yeah, I'm going to have a job and be responsible and self-sufficient. But also, I'm going to drink coffee with my friends every day at 2 p.m. at a coffee shop. And we're going to eat breakfast together even after I'm married and I have children. I think that's a really appealing fantasy. Uh, and I think that's maybe part of what maintains its appeal. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro and with me is Ricky Allpike. How are you doing, Ricky? I'm good, John. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. Now, uh, we, we have a cunning plan, don't we? <laughs> yes, well, always. Always. We do. And that is to get an expert in sitcoms on our show so we can talk about sitcoms. Absolutely. Look, people, some people listening to this will be like, what? You guys like sitcoms? I don't get it. I don't get you. Well, you know what? But there's a lot about me you don't know. Don't box me in. Before we bring on our expert soul to talk about everything sitcoms, I want to know, John, what, what's your top five sitcoms? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, oh, geez, you put me on the spot. You even told me you were going to ask me this. I'm embarrassed. So, <laughs> look, in no particular order, uh, Seinfeld, definitely. Frasier, yes. The UK Office, yes. Arrested Development. Um, oh, geez, I've got one more to pick. You know, Friends might just—it's either just in the five or maybe just slightly out of the five. I can't—I can't quite decide. I don't think I'm. What am I forgetting here? Help! Help me out. I might have to just throw in. Oh, if we're doing Blackadder. the UK, Blackadder. Yeah, I have to say Blackadder. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, yeah, I've I've recently been rewatching Blackadder, and I think it, it makes my top five. For for me, it's Curb Your Enthusiasm, Seinfeld, Frasier. Um, yeah, Blackadder, Arrested Development, I think they're stellar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, get, I was worried I was going to miss one out, you know. Um, mm. So, yeah, that's all. That's so all no, no, no Full House, no... Uh, well, I like Full House. Full House is fun. Yeah. Uh, but Married to Children. Oh, Married Children, can't get access to it much now. I'm really waiting for it. I feel like I'm going to love Married with Children when I rewatch it. <laughs> because yeah. you are now married with Because children. I'm married with children. And I'll be yes. like, yes, I get it. I get it. Well, oh, you know? well, you know what? Everybody loves Raymond. I, when I was a kid, I did not understand that show. But as soon as I got married and I watched a bit of it, I'm like, this show is genius. This is my life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I'll check it out. Let's do it. Well, we always tell you the truth here at the New Flesh Podcast. And the truth is that we need your help. We need you to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. We're also on YouTube. So please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment about the show you liked or perhaps one that you didn't. Word of mouth is also a very powerful tool. So please tell all of your friends. And finally, to our Uber fans, if you love what we do, you can send us a little cash via the Buy Me A Coffee platform. Any donation here is very much appreciated. And now let's get into it. Saw Austerlitz is an adjunct professor of writing and comedy history at New York University, as well as the author of Generation Friends, named by Vulture as one of the 15 best books about TV comedies, and Just a Shot Away, which the New York Times book review called the most blisteringly impassioned music book of the season. Saw's most recent book is titled Kind of a Big Deal and is all about the movie Anchorman. He is a graduate of Yale University and New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. Saul, welcome to The New Flesh. Thanks so much for having me. 
So, so uh, I feel like we could do a whole show on your your forthcoming book, kind of a big deal, uh, which I think it needs its own its own space. So, unfortunately, we're not talking about that today. I I, th- I feel like it would just devolve into doing Anchorman quotes for most of it. Uh, you know, like sixty percent of the time it works, works every, every time. time. uh but today we are talking about sitcoms uh and some of the work you've done around that uh both ricky and i are huge sitcom fans uh, which might come a bit of surprise to some of our some of our listeners but perhaps we should start by defining uh, a sitcom uh, as best we can Uh, would you mind sort of maybe running us through some of the features of, of a sitcom Sure. Yeah, I I want to have as wide a definition of the sitcom as possible to include some of the more recent shows that don't fit the exact model of sitcom from the 1950s, but still feel like they're part of a tradition. So the sitcom really gets started and it's mostly focused on domestic life uh, about middle class American families and uh, the sort of small challenges and small difficulties that invade their ordinary lives. And so every episode, you know, begins with kind of domestic harmony, and then it's interrupted by something. And then that something is easily uh, curtailed or solved by the end of the episode, and everything goes back to normal. So that's really the, the most traditional model of the sitcom. And then everything that comes afterward, in some fashion, challenges that or updates that. I feel like there's there's two kinds of people. There are there are the people out there who just the word sitcom just sends I don't know chills up their spine. They can't stand it. They hate it. And and then there are people like me. I I absolutely love sitcoms. I love I love uh, everything about it. So the the lack of the fourth wall, the canned laughter, the you know the familiarity, the characters. Um, have you encountered this this sort of sharp divide? Yeah, I think the sitcom is very much something that people love to hate. I, I think sometimes that has to do with having a very cramped definition of what the sitcom is. And so when I say sitcom, they're instantly thinking of sort of the most hackneyed 1970s or 1980s sitcom, you know, with sort of easy lessons for kids to learn or, you know, the 10th iteration of the same joke that we've already heard. And I think the sitcom includes all of those shows, which are often mediocre, but also can be a kind of comfort food for people, which I think should not be sneered at. But I think it also includes all sorts of really groundbreaking series, you know, starting in the 1970s with shows like All in the Family and the Mary Tyler Moore Show and MASH which really redefine what the sitcom is and what it's setting out to do and what it's capable of doing. And then a lot of the shows that come in their aftermath that look at that model, you know, whether it's the sort of traditional one that's shot on a soundstage with a laugh track or the shows that don't do any of those things, but look at the sitcom as a kind of uh, style that can be updated or changed or adapted to suit contemporary needs and to tell contemporary stories. Well, you mentioned a few tropes there that uh, get on people's nerves when it comes to sitcoms, but I'd like to know what, what makes a good sitcom? I think that's a really good question. I think the first thing is good writing. I think that good writing can save uh, something that otherwise might feel hackneyed. And then I think it's really, the sitcom especially is a form that asks us to spend time with the same people again and again. And we know at least especially in sort of the classic version of the sitcom, that we're going to be hearing some variation of 
this of a familiar story week after week. And so I think it's really a question of what characters, what performers do we enjoy spending time with? Whose company do we enjoy? So that even if we're watching something that feels like something we may have seen already, we're still getting the pleasure of being together with Lucille Ball or Mary Tyler Moore or Jerry Seinfeld or the cast of Friends or, you know, fill in the blank. Well, you said good writing, and I feel I feel like this is the underrated uh, point because I think most people watch sitcoms and feel, yeah, I, you know, that isn't very funny or I could do that or that's, you know, that's a bit mediocre or whatever. But, I mean, that is, that is just such uh, um, bunk because a line like from Friends, I mean, this, I've been rewatching Friends in preparation for today, and um, you know, a, a simple line like Monica comes up to to Phoebe and says, "You know what I'm thinking," and then Phoebe says, uh, "It's been so long since I've had sex that you, I'm wondering that you're wondering if they've changed it." Uh, I, a line like that is absolute champagne. And would take and takes time and craft and like years before they sat down to write the thing. I mean, what, what do you think about about uh, this sort of uh, eschewing of of or this 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 uh, ignoring of, of sublime writing? Yeah, I, I strongly agree. Uh, one of the great pleasures for me in writing Generation Friends was getting to interview the writers on the show uh, and to hear about a the ways in which they transmuted their own lives into storylines for the show, right? That they would sit around. And now this is sort of standard practice for television writers' rooms, but you know, the writers would sit around and basically tell stories about things that had happened to them or things that had happened to their friends or things that had happened in their past. And that kind of banter would eventually lead to someone saying, oh, that's interesting. What if, you know, that happened to Chandler? Or what if we adjusted it or adapted it like that? And I think one of the things that was most interesting for me in, in talking to the writers was that there was an interesting combination of pride and horror at having worked on Friends. Pride in the sense that they knew that they had created something that's lasted, right? That you know, new generations of fans are discovering. Horror only in the sense that they worked so hard like the, the hours they put in were so punishing and so intense. And it was understood that no one was going to settle for a second best line. Um, that I think for most of the writers, I got the sense that their whole careers since then, there's sort of been this feeling of like, yes, I'm working hard, but at least I'm not working the way that I was working on that show. <laughs> I think Seinfeld has a similar thing. He says his, um, his only regret about his time on the show, he, he, he said famously, he's like, I just wish I could have enjoyed it more. He's like, I just had no, you know, we worked so hard and it was so, you know, we put so much into it that I had no time to, to enjoy it at all. I know that it was going to be okay. And I, I think there's that sense of I've created something and it's a success, but how can I be sure that it will stay a success? How do I keep the fans on side? How do I make sure that we don't, you know, we don't degrade our material? We don't make it into something worse, an imitation of ourselves. And, and I, you know, Friends lasted for 10 seasons, which is an eternity by television time. Like it's hard to imagine uh, all that many shows today doing that. And I think that part of what allowed it to do that and part of what has maintained its audience for today is that sense that the quality stayed pretty consistent throughout and primarily because of the writing. 
Well, we're going to chat more about friends in a moment, but perhaps perhaps you could give us your top five because there's there's a lot of content out there these days and, and people might be daunted by the sheer amount of sitcoms available to watch. So, you know, what what are the top five that you would recommend that everyone on the planet have watched? That's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I definitely have to put Seinfeld in there, which I think is something, a show that, you know, changed the game in terms of what sitcoms were capable of doing or how they went about doing it. I think in terms of earlier shows, it's hard to pick from amongst them, but I did recently write about MASH and got a chance to look at it again. And I'm just continually amazed by the kinds of stories that MASH was able to tell and the way in which it was able to eat some really dark and difficult and complex material to American audiences at a time when that was much harder to do than it is today. Uh, I think I would also include The Simpsons, which sometimes gets lost in the mix because it's animated, but it's 100% a sitcom uh, and a show that has done remarkable things. And I actually just recently watched season 34 with my kids, and it's pretty, it's pretty excellent. Uh, it's surprisingly good. And then I would throw in uh, Community, which is the show that I ended my book sitcom with, and which I think is a magnificent show that is interested in revisiting all of the stereotypes of sitcoms and twisting them inside out in really compelling fashion. Well, like, I'm I'm outraged, Saul, uh, at your list. Uh, there's no Frasier. I can't believe that. Uh, I mean, there's no Arrested Development. You, explain yourself, man. <laughs> you only gave me five spots. If you'd given me twenty spots, I would have done. I would have. <laughs> uh, yes. It's 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 interesting. Seinfeld's on your top five. I, I would also put Curb Your Enthusiasm on my top five, and and I just think it's amazing that that Larry David was able to create two such iconic sitcoms in his lifetime. And and one that's very, people say it's very, well, obviously Seinfeld is very New York kind of specific. And then his Kirby Enthusiasm is very LA specific, you know, which which I think is interesting. Very. And, and the two shows really go together hand in hand. So you're absolutely right. Uh, I... For my students at NYU, I have a week of my class where we look at one episode of Seinfeld and one episode of Curb, and we watch the Curb episode that's called Seinfeld, which is the Seinfeld reunion, and just the you know life imitating art imitating life imitating art aspect of the varying episodes is is still discombobulating to watch, and still sort of this remarkable puzzle that they put together. Yeah, well, I I think that I think that reunion episode. Is is so amazing because uh, you know p- p- I'm sure Larry David has been asked to do a Seinfeld reunion since the show wrapped, and he's the kind of guy that would be very reluctant to do that. But he's he's been able to do a Seinfeld reunion without doing a Seinfeld reunion, and and make uh, essentially you know an extra episode that that kind of fits within the Seinfeld canon. But he's rolled it into this new show. I just think it's absolutely genius. It's this beautiful thing where he's giving us the thing that we want and not giving it to us all at the same time. And also giving us the emotional, um, that overwhelming emotion of returning to this beloved show while also taking away the expected emotion from Curb Your Enthusiasm of him getting back together with his ex-wife. It's just, it's such a beautifully executed piece of work. 
I have to ask uh, a bit of, can you give us some anecdotal information about the uh, younger generation's reaction to Seinfeld uh, and maybe friends a bit later, but, uh, you know, I have run into some people who have not like Seinfeld and I don't, I got to say, I do not understand these people at all. Like for me, Seinfeld's one, of, I mean, like I'm very forgiving and there's a lot of stuff out there and a lot of ways of, of living and whatever, but Seinfeld is like a non-negotiable for me. Like all of my friends love Seinfeld and it was so important to me and probably Ricky, I could maybe even speak for you, certainly in the nineties, like we, we, we had a very uh, sheltered, um, we live in the, we lived in the most isolated city in the world and in, and in Australia where at that time in the 90s we were like 20 years behind america like in terms of the commercialism and what you had, what you could access to and so seinfeld was this portal into just this wonderful hilarious wonderful world of of adulthood and snapple and yankees and <laughs> you know and all of this good stuff so what's the deal have you have you encountered uh, a, a a generational divide with seinfeld at all I've encountered a generational divide in general with showing some of the shows that I love from the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, I think the most cutting one that I got from one of my students was when I showed them an episode of Sex and the City. And one of the students, not intending to be rude, just said, oh, Sex and the City. Yeah, my mom used to like that show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, my wife is would be very burned at that. I, I think my my working theory here is that I think sometimes there are shows that are so iconic and so significant in terms of setting a tone for what comes afterward that it's a little bit difficult to watch them later on. Like I think that when you come fresh to a show like Seinfeld or like the Mary Tyler Moore show and you see it now, you know, especially if, let's say you're 18 or 20 years old, you may feel like, ah, oh, I've seen this already. This feels really familiar. What's the big deal? And I think seeing it non-chronologically um, is complicated or challenging, right? Like you, you have to remind yourself or sometimes I have to remind students, yeah, all the things that you like in all these other shows, they come from this. This is the place where they emerge from. And I think that's especially true for Seinfeld which in the 90s felt like revolutionary television. Like it was doing things that we had never seen on TV before. And in a lot of ways, those tricks or those uh, advances, I think have been imitated by so many shows in the years since. You kind of have to remind yourself while watching Seinfeld that this is, this is the, mm. the uh, foundation stone. This is the place where that all comes from. Well, why do you think some sitcoms last through generations like Friends has and, and others seem unwatchable today? I think that's such an interesting question. And it's one that I've really been wrestling with because there's not really any means of predicting it in advance, right? I think that if we had all had a conversation in 1996 and one of us posed the question of, well, which shows that are on TV right now are likely to still have a passionate audience 25 years from now. I don't think I would have selected Friends, and I'm guessing probably neither of you would have selected people, Friends. I probably would have said, that, like people. well, most people probably would have said Murphy Brown, whereas I would argue that Murphy Brown is is absolutely unwatchable today. Like, uh, you watch it and you just you feel so alienated. You're like, what the hell is this? Yeah, and so I, I think that some of it is just, you know, as time passes, audiences change, obviously, and what they're looking for changes. And I think that 
Friends in particular offers younger audiences something that it would be something surprising in the sense that I think it offers them a kind of nostalgia for the past that they didn't experience, that they're seeing this kind of kinder, gentler time where, you know, people just hung out and there were no phones and you just spent all this time with your friends. And I think that's especially appealing to younger audiences for whom, you know, their friends are often their whole world. This idea that, yeah, I'm going to be an adult. Yeah, I'm going to have a job and be responsible and self-sufficient. But also, I'm going to drink coffee with my friends every day at 2 p.m. at a coffee shop. And we're going to eat breakfast together even after I'm married and I have children. I think that's a really appealing fantasy. Uh, and I think that's maybe part of what maintains its appeal. You're going to see your friends for breakfast once every six months when you have a kid. <laughs> if that. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> Enough to tell the younger generation that. <laughs> well, John, John already mentioned that we grew up in the 1990s and, you know, there seemed to be just a ton of sitcoms around at that time. You know, I can name ones off the top of my head that I've never even watched, like The Naked Truth, News Radio, Wings, Kings of Queens, Dharma and Greg, Moesha, Mad About You, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Uh, on and on it goes. I could go on forever. Uh, was the 90s the pinnacle of the sitcom? I think in a way, but I think part of what I would argue is that the sitcom just changes. And so in the same way that in the late 90s and early 2000s, you have the rise of you know, premium cable and shows like Sex and the City and Sopranos, you know, I would include the comedy series that emerge in the aftermath of that sort of peak era that you're describing as still being part of that tradition. I look at something like Sex and the City or like Community that I had mentioned, or even shows like, you know, The Office as, as being very much in that model. They're, they're shifting a bit in terms of what they do, right? The Office is a show that's about the workplace, um, but it's still very much kind of touching on all of those same um, pleasure buttons that a good sitcom does, right? If a big chunk of what made Friends appealing was this soap operatic aspect of the storyline. I think the same is true of something like The Office, right? that people come in and they're enjoying all the jokes and the pranks, but also they're there for the emotional. And so I think that, and, and you know, we see the same thing with Sex and the City as well. So I, I think that it carries over even into shows that don't necessarily feel like they're exactly that traditional sitcom model, they're still very much in that same tradition. Well, I think it's time to probably launch launch uh, properly into, into Friends for a little bit. Uh, and you've written uh, uh, a couple of uh, books of, uh, about Friends, uh, and they are. Uh, if anyone is is even if you're interested in Friends, you have to read this. It was it was a totally eye opening, and uh, and beautifully written. But in terms of Friends, we've already sort of touched on sort of touched on uh, generational divides. What's your take on the, on on Friends? Because it feels like it has a whole new lease on life now. Uh, it's fine, I would argue, and it will get your your input of uh, that. It's found a whole new audience being on on Netflix or wherever it's living now. But I and I hear this interesting thing. Like I've heard um, one of our, our podcasts that we respect uh, uh, from Redfem. Uh, she said uh, on a recent of her podcast that she she says that oh Gen Z hate Friends, and I've heard this this criticism. But I tell you what, my 11 year old uh, nieces and nephews they love friends what is going on here we're, we're, with with friends and its lease new lease on life and 
you know, who loves it and who hates it in terms of the younger, younger generations? Yeah. I mean, I got interested in writing the book that would eventually become Generation Friends by reading an article in the New York Times. And the article was about how it was in 2014, I think. And it was about how high school kids in Manhattan were getting obsessed with friends and were watching it and talking about it and debating it. That blew my mind in part just because the idea of kids watching a 20-year-old show and treating it like it's brand new material was fascinating to me. So, you know, I think so many of those shows from that era, um, they have no real footprint for a younger generation. I don't think that too many 20-year-olds are watching Frasier these days, which isn't to say that it's a better or worse show. It's just a matter of what products from that era kind of make that long transition so that a younger generation discovers them and finds them appealing. And I think I'm sure with the younger generation that Friends has, you know, fans and detractors like anyone else, but even the fact that it has detractors, I think speaks to its appeal, right? Like there aren't any 19 year olds who bother to tell you that they don't like Frasier because they probably don't know what it is. And it's not important enough to them to have a strong opinion about. Whereas Friends still matters to younger people like even if it's still fascinating to me that this show, which premiered 29 years ago, uh, is still relevant enough for, for kids to think about. Well, what, one, of the, one of the taglines I read about friends was that, that uh, it's the time of your life when your friends are your family or, or, or something to that effect. And, and I don't know about you, Saul, but I've never had a period in my life where I had five friends hanging out with me 24-7 for 10 years. Do you think the show is more about aspiration rather than relatability? 100%. I mean, it's a fantasy, right? It's a fantasy. And I, I think one of the points that I, that I was setting out to make in my book was that it's a fantasy about New York as well. The show that is being created in the mid-1990s. New York is in the midst of a transition, but it's, you know, it, it's premiering at a time when there are something like 2,000 murders in New York in that given year. Very, um, you know, kind of polite, cleaned up version of New York where everyone, where it's sort of like a small town, right? You see the same six people over and over. Everyone's in the same coffee shop all the time. Uh, and I think it's meant to be a kind of fantasy. It's meant to be like you said, aspirational in the sense that, you know, here is this crew of people that all they ever want to do is hang out together. And I think one of the interesting things is that there are sort of story lessons in there in terms of how the show got made. So early on, the thought was, okay, we have this show, it's about six friends, we're going to send them all out into the world, and things will happen to them separately. And they do that for a few episodes, and then they realize the audience doesn't really like that. Like, this, the model that actually works better for them is to have things happen off stage, and then have all the six friends come together so that they can hear the story of what happened. And I think the audience is so passionate about seeing these particular characters together that the whole show kind of gets modeled around that style, you know, where it's much more about kind of catching up on things that have happened elsewhere, rather than us following them around the city. Well, uh, I'd like to get your take on what Friends is actually about because I've had a lot. Uh, uh, I probably, you know, Seinfeld. We know it's about nothing. They say, but what it, uh, what is Friends really about? Because it, there was a description in your book that I thought really nailed it for me. 
it narrative minimalism mixed with a sort of a soap opera or, or like melodramatic maximalism. Uh, for example, that is my example. There'd be a whole thread about Phoebe's boyfriend, new boyfriend wearing baggy shorts and, and Chandler and Joey seeing his balls and being horrified <laughs> at it and them, them dealing with it. So what is this show really about? <laughs> Yeah, I think the soap operatic aspect is really important. Uh, I think that sometimes when we use the phrase soap opera, it's understood to be pejorative, right? That we're saying something negative. And I don't mean it that way. But what I think is is interesting about the show and what's telling about it, and I think part of what makes it appealing to audiences is this sense that we're sort of seeing this heightened world where everything is about these characters' emotions and their romantic lives, right? So yeah, characters have jobs. They... And, and we see a little bit of what they do at work. And sometimes that's relevant to us. Characters have families, although mostly what we see of their families is how messed up those families are, right? So a reminder that the f- their friends are replacing something that's not working. But the crux of the show is very much about their emotional lives, right? About who do you love? How do you love them? And, and also about this idea that no matter what else happens, right? No matter what turmoil may happen, we're never questioning the idea that these friends are are um, loyal to each other, right? That they'll always have each other. And that 100% is aspirational and has a fantasy element to it, right? I don't think we're, I think that that the show is, is sort of selling us something, but what's fascinating to me is how appealing that idea is, right? How much I think a certain um, kind of, of television fan or especially a younger person looks at this as, as this kind of wonderful fantasia that they that they would like to be a part of, even if just by watching it for 22 minutes at a time. Well, so I, I want to know what the deal is with New York in Friends, because it, it seems to lack any New York flavor or, or reverence at all, except for the handful of stock shots we see, which I think is a stark contrast to Seinfeld, which incorporates, you know, the Yankees and you know, at subways and, and, and those sorts of things within the show. I mean, what, uh, uh, you know, why is New York, why is Friends even set in New York? I think that's a good question. I think there's not much in the way of New York material. And I think it's telling that, you know, Friends is written by a bunch of writers in Los Angeles, many of whom don't have a particular connection to New York. You know, the show is set there because David Crane and Marta Kaufman, the creators of the show, had lived in New York prior to moving to Los Angeles had fallen in with a crew of people that they had, you know, a crew of friends that they had really liked and had the idea of writing a show that was sort of modeled on their their uh, time together. But yeah, there's very little genuine New York content in the show. And you sort of feel in watching it that the show could equally be set in Indianapolis and it probably wouldn't lose anything in, in the equation. It's a very uh, artificial version of New York. Mm. Is is it a case that it's sort of, you know, that the, the friends have come from, because uh, I, 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 I can't quite remember, but I don't think they all come from New York. I don't think they were born in New York, but they sort of come to a city to sort of make it in a way and they've sort of found their family. I and mean, maybe that's why New York is, is, is important to the show. Well, I think it also speaks to that aspirational sense that we've been talking about, right? That New York has a certain ring to it that some, you know, smaller city might not. And so... The idea that these characters are living their lives against this vast stage of New York, I think, adds to the appeal or that sense that, you know, we're, we're sort of watching something 
big and you know bigger than life. So, what's your take on uh, on the New Yorkness of the show? Because you're you live in New York, uh, whereas uh, all of my conceptions of New York come from movies and TV. It's so, so, so much to the point when I go to New York, I only do stuff from movies and TV. I never do. I just go, oh, this is where man, the shop from Manhattan was. Oh, that I went to Monk's Diner. I, that's all I do. I don't do anything that real New Yorkers do. So what, <laughs> what, what's, what's going on here? Yeah, it, it feels very, very fake to me. Um, the only thing that kind of prevents it from bothering me more is that the show is so obviously fake about New York and does not really seem to devote a lot of time or energy to worrying about it. So, you know, when I was writing my book, I, I wanted to kind of visit some New York sites that are, that matter in the, in the show. And there were so few of them that it was hard to even come up with much of anything. Um, the most interesting for me was visiting the building that serves as the exterior for their apartment. And what was fascinating was that there were all of these people standing on the street, taking photos of themselves outside this building. And there's no actual connection to friends, right? Like, you know, nothing from the show happened there. It's just a stock shot of an exterior of a building. But even that seemed to have so much uh, cachet for people that, you know, people were visiting from other countries and were there to take photos of themselves in this spot. It was like a kind of um, pilgrimage. And I think there's something interesting about that, right? That Friends is such a fake version of New York, and yet people come to the real New York to kind of get close to it. Do do do, do, do most people know that that it's not shot inside that apartment though? Because I I would I don't know I would I would guess that there'd be a few perhaps international tourists that might think that they actually shot the the show inside there. It's entirely possible that people are picturing that they're going <laughs> to run to Ross and Chandler inside that building. Yes. Well, uh, John mentioned our hometown, Perth, which is technically the most isolated city in the world. And when when I used to watch sitcoms as a kid, I'd be mesmerized by the opening montages, which usually centered around a city. And, you know, I'm thinking of, of, of Family Matters and Perfect Strangers. They were both set in Chicago. Full House, which, of course, was San Francisco. Uh, Friends, as we've said, New York and loads of others set in New York. The Drew Carey Show, Cleveland, Cheers, Boston, Frasier, Seattle. I could go on forever. But what do you think a city adds to a sitcom? I think that I think part of the idea is to give us a sense of place, right? Maybe especially for American audiences, each of those each of those places has a certain symbolism or meaning, right? Like you mentioned the Drew Carey show, and I think that, you know, Cleveland feels like a more sort of blue-collar, ordinary working Joe kind of place than New York. Um, whereas New York or Los Angeles has, you know, um has that more aspirational sense, has that sense of being more glamorous or glitzy. So I, I think that picking a particular location often adds, gives audiences a chance to kind of place the story before the, anything's even started. Well, I think we've got to get into the meat of it. There's there's two anachronistic things that stick out when you watch Friends now. Uh, the We'll get into the second one a little later, but the first is what's termed in uh, in these circles as gay panic. Now, I'm a bawdy, old-fashioned liberal, but i got to say this show 
is obsessed with being gay. Uh, like I, I think about the quotes all the time. Like there's a quote from Joey uh, which it rings in my ears. He says about soap to Chandler, he says, think about the first place you wash and the last place I wash, uh, which I think is just a representative of their uh, the obsession with homosexuality. What's, what's your take on, on all of this? So I think that it's helpful to remember that Friends is created by David Crane, who's gay. And I think that the framework that he provided for me in kind of thinking about the show was helpful in in terms of kind of contextualizing those jokes. And his point was that he was, in, in writing the show, he was mocking what he saw as a certain kind of straight guy panic about anything that, you know, diminishes their masculinity or their sense of self. And I think that for me, that that's sort of the context that I see those jokes in. I, I, I definitely get that for other people, the jokes are just offensive. And, and I think that there are places where friends oversteps. I think friends doesn't handle trans issues particularly well. Although also, you know, I don't, I can't think of too many examples of works of popular culture that did in the 1990s. Um, so yeah, I think those jokes don't, don't bother me and and I find them to work in context but I think I think only in, in as much as as I'm sort of seeing them through the lens that David Crane uh, provides for them well is it is it fair to say that this show was doing its best in terms of being progressive for a mainstream show I mean there's not a lot of, of wriggle room when it comes to when we're talking about this kind of money uh, and, and that the kind of stage that they, they commanded I think the mistake that people make is ignoring a all the causes and conditions that go into creating a huge network show and the context of the time uh, so I want to get your take on this because I feel that what um, people they they rather than look at friends and say well actually comparatively it was it was probably doing better than most in terms of um, you know this this kind of thing whereas uh, you know I think I think it's very uncharitable when I hear people you know slamming these aspects of it what, what, what do you think yeah I mean I'm inclined to sort of look on the positive side here I think that it's very interesting to me that Friends is the first network show to have a lesbian wedding on it. And I think that Friends was doing its best to tell stories that included a wider variety of sexual orientations than most shows had up until that point. And I think clearly there are, you know, not everything has aged equally well. One of the things that David Crane pointed out in his interview was that he was happy that he had told that story and also wished that he had had that episode be about those characters and not be about the other characters and their response to the lesbian wedding. So I think, you know, there are definitely, there were definitely would be changes in how the stories get told, but it's still notable that the show is seeking to do things that had not yet fully become a part of mainstream popular culture. And, and I give it credit for that, even though, not every aspect of it necessarily works equally well. It's also helpful to remember that this is, you know, this show is almost 30 years old. Well, John, you, you had a theory that you floated my way, I think yesterday or the day before, and you you you, you uh, thought that perhaps the, the idea of gay panic or the gay panic kind of 
comedic routine is sort of a coping mechanism from, you know, coming out of the 80s and sort of the AIDS epidemic and then sort of into the 2000s where, you know, most liberal countries and cities now, you know, accept gay marriage and that this was sort of like a, a coping mechanism as a way in, in, in society, which I thought was, was an interesting take and, and, you know, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that, Saul. But I think also people misunderstand what the gay panic joke is actually about. It's not making fun of gay people. It's making fun of the fact there are people out there that get so hot under the collar uh, about, you know, seeming to be gay or being mistaken for someone who's homosexual. I mean, what are your thoughts here, Saul? Yeah, I, I, I take these jokes as being satires of the characters who are telling them or making these comments. I, I don't think that we're meant to sort of cheer along with these characters as they say these things. I think we're meant to mock them for being such bros, right? That they like don't realize how they're coming off. And maybe some of that context has sort of gotten lost over time, or maybe people are, are you know, kind of watching it out of context. But yeah, that that's how I read them. And, and I think clearly we're meant to like all of the characters on this show, but also we're meant to understand that they have flaws and failings and foibles. And especially for Chandler and Joey, I think part of that foible is that they, you know, they are constantly sort of seeking to protect their their waning masculinity in a variety of ways, including making all of these gay panic jokes. So the joke, as I see it, is on them. Now, we this is the only other uh, heavy one we have to we have to talk about. It's the other thing, which and look, we, I think we got to talk about this because this is this was no small story. This comes from the LA Times in 2022. Quote. Marta Kaufman, co-creator of Friends, recently made a $4 million pledge to her alma mater, Brandeis University, to support its African and African-American studies department, close quote. Uh, that's just uh, uh, an indicator of, of, of the facts. Um, basically, this was in response to uh, a long-standing criticism, which, which when I read your book, I was fascinated that the criticisms of diversity in the show were around from day one, that, that, which is fascinating. might get you to talk about that, but um, uh, that the show was too white, uh, especially for New York. But uh, apparently, uh, Kaufman had defended herself for a very long time or sort of felt that, you know, didn't feel that hot about it. But then after the events of, of George Floyd's uh, death, uh, she flipped completely and made this very public huge donation to her old college so perhaps you could you could give us your your view on on all of this yeah i think one of the helpful things to remember as you pointed out or something that kind of gets lost in the mix is that these conversations aren't new right they they didn't start in 2020 or in 2005 or you know these are conversations that were happening as the show is on the air as the show becomes a big success part of the discussion is like to what extent does Friends match the reality of New York? To what extent is it, is it a kind of whitewashing where we're only seeing white characters on the screen? Um, and it's part of a larger conversation that's taking place around television and around popular culture in the 90s of how do we make for a more inclusive version of culture? How do we tell a wider array of stories? And I think that you know Friends does not handle this particularly well. I think that they make a few attempts at including black characters, none of it feels particularly organic and none of it is particularly sustained. Um, I'm generally of the perspective that it's not that any individual story needs to have a certain, uh, needs to tell certain stories or needs to have a certain swath of characters, but rather the sum total of popular culture should make sure to include 
a wider variety of, of stories and a wider variety of characters. But clearly, you know, in as much as Friends is seeking to be this New York show, uh, it's not doing that by having six middle-class white characters as the people on the show. And so I think that to some extent, Friends, has, by virtue of its success, has painted itself into a corner a little bit. And I think we can see that somewhat in the reboot of Sex and the City, right? Sex and the City also faces a lot, faced a lot of these same questions. And so in bringing it back, they introduced a whole swath of new characters. And I think I, I fully understand how they made those choices. And I think those choices are admirable and they don't necessarily always work in terms of making a good television series. And so I think that Friends has that same challenge, right? For a long time, people were passionately uh, devoted to the idea that Friends should have a reunion, that there should be sort of a comeback version of the show. And I spoke to Kevin Bright, who's the other uh, the other one of the three creators of the show, and I thought he made a really astute point, which is that Friends could do either one of two things, both of which would be unsuccessful. Either it could tell exactly the same stories that audiences have grown to love from the show, except all of the characters will now be in their 50s, and so it will feel really strange to be watching 55-year-olds acting like they're 25. Or it could tell stories that were true to the, to the characters as they understand them now, but those stories will be completely different because they'll be about people in middle age, uh, and they won't be what fans or audiences have come to expect. And I think the same is somewhat true um, in terms of its handling of race. I think that, you know, friends failed to do a good job with that. In in saying that, I think Friends is very much of a piece with many, if not most, of the shows of its era. I don't think it was a particular outlier, only in as much as it was, you know, one of the most popular shows of its era. But, you know, you go back and you look at the coverage in the New York Times or the LA Times of television, and one of the things they're talking about is is sort of, you know, they're talking about other shows from the era like NYPD Blue and the ways in which, you know, they're sort of tokenizing, right? That there's one or two black characters in supporting roles and that's it. Um, so it's it was a problem in television that went beyond just Friends, but Friends, by virtue of being this immensely popular series, has sort of come to represent the 90s in its totality and kind of erases some of the other shows of its era, all of which were kind of struggling and not succeeding uh, with with these same questions. Now, you, you brought up Sex in the City, and uh, I have been somewhat forced to watch a few episodes of the new rebooted uh, Sex in the City, uh, I, I believe it's called And Just Like That. And I've got to say, it, it is horrible. I think all those diversity things you mentioned are so forced in this show that it actually betrays a, a few of the characters, in particular Miranda, who in the original show was was a very strong uh I, I don't know if you would call her a feminist, but I guess she's kind of a feminist character, but she was a very strong character. And in this show, they have just made her a dithering, blubbering idiot. And I hate that. So, I, 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 you know, I mean, what are your thoughts on rebooting in general and, and maybe in Sex and the City? I, I just think they've done an awful job here. I think reboots don't work. I think audiences really want them. They really want to have that extra time with characters that they've come to love. I think that they almost never succeed and they fail in such a wide variety of ways, right? Everything from Roseanne coming back and being a big success 
And then Roseanne Barr blowing it up by saying all the hateful, terrible things she said to sort of more ordinary difficulties like, um, you know, shows like Will and Grace coming back and just not really having a reason to be back. I think, I do think actually that the the best model, the, the most successful model for the reboot is not a reboot, but just to have a reunion. Like I think that the way that Friends handled it was very smart in as much as it gave the audience some of the things that they wanted, which is seeing all these people, all these characters that they love and not trying to give them any additional material, not bringing back the story, not trying to update it, not doing any of that, just giving people like a pure shot of nostalgia, which is really all they wanted in the first place. And so I think that model works much better than the attempt to take a story that was really successful in a particular time and place and with particular characters who also happen to be a particular age and trying to update it for, you know, a completely different era with characters who are much older, with actors who are much older. I think that's just, it's such a tightrope walk. And I'm not like, I have so, I have a lot of respect for the people who are trying to do that with and just like that. I don't think it works, but I think it's such an impossible task that I don't know how it could. Mm, yeah. Well, perhaps before we leave with Marta Kaufman there, um, I just have sort of a follow-up on that whole situation. I, I guess a, a broad question is, should artists apologize for their work both when times change and they become old and regretful? Yeah, I I, I guess I don't, I don't have uh, any problems with artists sort of reckoning with what their work means to people or the ways in which they may have accomplished some things and not accomplished others. I don't think that Marta Kaufman has to apologize to anyone, in my personal opinion. But I think that, you know, maybe wrestling with or reckoning with the question of, well, what is what did it mean to tell a story that, you know, so thoroughly centered whiteness and didn't have space for other kinds of characters? I think that's that strikes me as being a fair thing to to engage with as an artist. I, I don't think that you know, I don't think anyone, I think if you say something genuinely terrible, that's a reason to apologize. I think, you know, failures of omission don't require apologies, but maybe for a certain kind of thoughtful artist, prompt them to think about, well, what other kinds of stories might I tell? Or what have I left out as part of this equation? For me, you, you handled it beautifully in the book, and I think that uh, people should just read, you know, what you've had to say uh, about about the whole issue. And you've spoken to some of these people. I think you've spoken beautifully about the nuances. And uh, but perhaps, um, uh, you know, we can we can you know shift gears into 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 your you know your book. You, you mentioned uh, about Generation Friends. You know, but, oh sorry, uh, uh, you've also written another another book uh, on sitcoms. Um, can you perhaps talk talk us to us about that book for a second and you know how it's structured and and what's some of the sitcoms you cover yeah so my idea was to take for the books that come was to take uh one particular episode of each show that i chose to write about and start by really looking in depth at that episode because you know the thing about sitcoms in particular is that they're really defined by their episodes that's how we consume them that's how we think about them we remember particular episodes that stand out in our minds and i think especially so for the sitcoms of the past where there weren't you know the streaming dvd uh 
um, you know, all, all the different ways that we might watch a show now, uh, shows were somewhat disposable, right? We watched an episode, we loved it, and then it disappeared and we didn't get to have it anymore. And so I think kind of reclaiming some of that history and, and kind of going back to these shows and, and engaging with them uh, episode by episode was very appealing to me. And I really wanted to make an argument on behalf of the sitcom. You know, like you, like you both were saying, sitcoms often kind of get, um, get criticized or get minimized as being uh, lowest common denominator or just disposable junk. And I felt like there are lots of shows in, for which that feels fair, but there's a real kind of historical legacy to the sitcom. And it's, it, it is its own style. It has its own heritage. And I really wanted to tell that story and to kind of put all those pieces together for readers. Well, silly question. Uh, what What's your least favorite sitcom? So for a sitcom, I wanted to pick one show that represented the 1960s because the 1960s were a pretty brutal time for sitcoms and for television in general. So I actually watched every episode of Gilligan's Island, which I don't recommend anyone doing <laughs> in any circumstances. Uh, it's a very, very terrible show. Uh, I think that people... <laughs> Straight up. <laughs> they've watched one episode and it was sort of cute, but there are 90 episodes and they're all the same. Uh, it's n- it's not good. Wow. <laughs> no. Oh, that's funny. Well, do, do, I have to ask this. As a musician, I have to ask, do you have a favorite sitcom music theme? That's a great question. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I think they're all such earworms, right? The yeah. the good ones really get stuck in your head where you watch the episode and then suddenly it's like bouncing around in your brain for days afterwards. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely thinking about some of the iconic 90s ones like The Simpsons and Seinfeld and Frasier that each had their own very particular styles. Child, what about Charles and Charles? I love Charles in Charge. That one just gets in my brain. <laughs> yes, I haven't thought about that show in a long time. And That's Family definitely... Ties. Fa- family Ties, like, just, just like, you know, I sing both parts as well. I don't even <laughs> break it up. Well, I'm, 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 I'm quite partial to, to the ones that are more on the sappy end of, of the scale. Like, I'm, I'm a big fan of the ALF theme music. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got to do mouth That's piano for that, you know? Well, it's, it's, it's all slap bass. So it's sort of, you know, it's, uh, I guess it's a bit, b- bit before Seinfeld, which was very slap bassy. So, yeah. But so uh, we'll be speaking to a, a guest later next month, a guy uh, named Ed West, who wrote an article celebrating 40 years since the British sitcom Blackadder was first aired. And I'm interested in your thoughts on, on British sitcoms and whether you've seen Blackadder. I haven't seen Blackadder. Um I've loved the British sitcoms that I've watched. I honestly know way less about it than I probably should. But the series that I've watched, I really liked. And I think in some ways, the American model is moving closer in the direction of the British model, right? I think when American audiences first got introduced to like the original UK office, there was a lot of confusion. It was like, what? There's six episodes? What? Like, why Why is there so little? Give me more yeah. and more and more. And now I think our whole, you know, for better and for worse and in ways that are intersecting with the, you know, the two strikes in Hollywood right now, there's just less of everything. And I think sometimes that works to everyone's benefit. I think not every show is served well by there being, you know, 24, 25 minute episodes uh, on each season. Um, And I think that some of the, you know, having shows have a shorter run has been really helpful for the 
the um, the quality of the shows. Uh, so yeah, so I'm seeing some ways in which that British style has really infiltrated American television making as well. Yeah, well, I, th- I think that more more compacted uh, episodic thing that the, the British people do, like six episodes, I think each each season is of, of Blackadder. I think that, that sort of comes out of necessity. I think I remember uh, reading Noel Fielding talking about uh, a show called The Mighty Boosh and how they just got burnt out because they didn't have the kind of team of writers that an American sitcom has where, where, where you, you, you know, I mean, there's, there's just two guys for the mighty Bush, whereas a show, I don't know, a big show like Frasier or, you know, you know, friends for instance, would have a team of writers, you know? And I think we're seeing, we're seeing some of the, both the upside and the downside of that in American television. The upside I think is that there are a lot of high quality shows. The downside, which I think has really come to the forefront during the discussions around the two strikes is that, for writers in particular, you know, that training that writers used to get on a show like Friends, where they'd write an episode and then they would be on stage when the episode was shot and they'd be involved in the post-production. They would sort of learn everything there was to learn about how television got made. Writers don't get that same kind of experience anymore. And so I think it's just harder for younger writers, even talented younger writers, to kind of learn the business enough to eventually run their own shows. Well, I've got a couple of uh, uh, successful television writers that listen to our show, uh, and they would they would be at me if I didn't ask you about writers and about because you've spoken to these incredible, uh, incredibly talented uh, writers on Friends, uh, and so perhaps you could give some insight into I don't know, like what does it take to to become a writer? What sets these people apart? Are they unique? What kind of training have they, have they got? And and some of their process just just give me something, so. Yeah, it was so fascinating to me to try to understand what made for successful writers. And I think some of it had to do with, you know, the vision kind of imposed from above by David Crane and, and you know, by Marta Kaufman, by the creators of the show, uh, in part in terms of this idea that they were never going to settle, right? They were never going to take, okay, fine, we're all tired, let's just go home, you know, whatever joke we've written is fine. And I think that even for the younger writers who struggled with this, I think they really admired that that passion that David Crane in particular brought to it, that he said, you know, we're always going to work as hard as we can to get to the place where we all feel like we've written the best possible version of that joke. And you sort of see that that the, the writers who work with them kind of carry that idea with them into all the work that they did afterwards. Um, I think also, you know, one of the things that was interesting for me and to understand was that for a lot of the writers, David Crane and Marta Kaufman were themselves in their mid thirties when they sold friends. And so one of the ideas that they had was, okay, we're writing about a particular era. We've lived through that era. We are no longer those people anymore. And so we really want to hire younger writers. We want to hire people who are kind of going through the things that our characters are going through right now. And so, you know, hearing about the ways in which these writers were encouraged to bring in their own lives and their friends' lives and, you know, the people, their, all, all the lives of all the people they knew into the stories um, and figuring out ways to take that raw material and turn it into stories for the characters, I found to just be totally fascinating. Well, what are some some of the greatest sitcom finales for you? So, you know, when, when do they get it right and, and when do they get it wrong? 
Um, you know, I think given the the kind of emotional uh, nuance of the sitcom and given the emotional connection that audiences have, I think usually the shows that get it right are the ones that keep it simple and, and kind of give the audience what they want. I think about something like Cheers, which, you know, um, understands the nature of the show's appeal and understands kind of what audiences want to get from it. I'm not a... a I'm not opposed to the Seinfeld finale. I don't think it's anywhere near as terrible as some people might have it, but I think it was trying to execute something a little bit more complicated. And, you know, especially in hindsight, right, with having 25 more years of television to sort of look at, it it's clear how difficult it is to execute a finale, especially for a show that's beloved and the shows that struggle to do that often kind of harm their legacy as a result, which just, it just makes me empathize with the creators of these shows because it's so difficult to figure out a way to say farewell that works well. But yeah, I, I think, you know, Cheers and Friends are good examples of kind of giving the audience the thing that they want. I think there are other shows that do things that are more experimental. I'm thinking about something like Atlanta, which is experimental all the way through and is, you know, never sort of settles into any kind of routine, um, but also figures out a way to kind of say goodbye to the characters while also keeping us off kilter every second of the way. Mm. Well, I think maybe for me, it's pathos, you know, when that ending has pathos, like I'm thinking, I know you haven't seen Blackadder, but at, but at the end of season four of Blackadder, it's set in 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 the trenches of World War One. They actually have to go over and, and make that final push. And it's implied that, you know, most of the characters don't make it. And I'm also thinking, it just popped into my head, the finale of Dinosaurs, I think, ends <laughs> with the massive... With the massive meteor that that's coming to basically wipe starts, out the dinosaurs, it starts snowing, doesn't it? Doesn't it just start snowing outside? I think it I does. And, yeah. and, and and you go, oh, it's dreadful, dreadful yes. ending. <laughs> but but perfect. Well, it's true, but it's a kids' show for goodness' sake. <laughs> we've got we've got quotes from like not to mama or whatever, which is yes. the big quote from it. And then it's an yeah. ice age starting outside. It's dreadful, Ricky. God. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Uh, well, we, 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 I know we have to wrap up soon, so, but while we have you, uh, you know, uh, Ricky and I have a controversial idea. I think we're both agreed on this. We, we like Frasier better than she is. What do you think? That is controversial. Uh, yeah, I, I like Cheers better than Frasier, um, but I think it's interesting, and I, it definitely feels like Frasier has that longer tail that we were talking about with friends, right? That, like, people maybe in that same sense of kind of television comfort food, right? Like the thing you go to at the end of the night to just have a minute with characters you love. Frasier seems to do that more for contemporary audiences than Cheers does. I think Cheers is a great show. I don't hear much about it from, I don't hear much from people who are telling me, oh, I'm watching Cheers again now. Whereas Frasier still seems to be part of that cultural mix. Maybe it's just the, 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 I don't know. The, the, it's just it's Cheers represents to a lot of people. I think the first five seasons that that um, push and pull between Sam and Diane is is a masterclass. Like that's just that that, that is incredible. That, and that it leaves once Shelley Long leaves. We don't have that that incredible um, screwball comedy. Uh, but but there's just something um, antisocial in the modern context about hanging out at a bar, like you know. And you know, there's 
I just don't think people. Um, it even looks weird in Friends. They do a flashback at where where they're hanging out at a bar, and uh, and it feels weird. You, you know, <laughs> it's something that I just don't think translates. Yeah, I think you're right, but it's funny also because our expectations change over time. So when David Crane and Marta Kaufman were pitching Friends and t- saying, "Okay, this show's going to be set in a coffee shop," like the number one comment that they got from the network executives like we really love the show but are you sure about a coffee shop can we have it at a bar or something like that like they just did not get that whereas now i think it's flipped inside out and we i think are imposing all sorts of ideas about characters who are hanging out in bars that like were not in the show in the 1980s necessarily well so we're almost out of time you've been so generous uh can you can you please tell us about your new book kind of a big deal Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I have a new book coming out later this month. Uh, it's called kind of a big deal and it is the story of the making of the movie Anchorman. So also about comedy, but a slightly, uh, different style of comedy. Um, it is, I got to speak to Adam McKay and Will Ferrell and tell the story of how a screenplay that was originally going to be about a plane crash and cannibalism, uh, turned into the movie that people love. Um, it was really fun to get to work on. I also got to uh, think about and write about some of the what I see as kind of the larger themes of the movie about uh, feminism, about the ways we think about sort of the bad old days uh, and how we handle characters, um, you know, sort of this, this uh, battle of the sexes style story in which Will Ferrell's Ron Burgundy kind of gets his comeuppance. And it was a really fun book to get to work on. Um, It was really fun to get to talk to so many of the people who were involved in the making of the movie. Uh, And I hope people really like it. Well, we, uh, we'll see if we can convince you to come back uh, and talk about that another time. Um, uh, but we'd like to give you the final the final words or uh, perhaps summing up some of the things we've spoken about today, uh, sitcom and, you know, uh, uh, I feel like I always feel like I have to defend sitcoms, you know, like and I, don't, I just don't know. It's a bit like liking Tom Cruise. You, you, which I do, and I have to defend that all the time. I mean, you know, would you feel the same way? You know, I was thinking about this in the context of the phenomenon of Barbie. Um, I think that people have a tendency to view comedy as disposable or as something that's less than or, you know, that that is is doesn't have the heft of, of you know, really serious, intense drama. And I love serious, intense dramas, but I think comedy is really a really sort of speak to the reality of the societies we live in oftentimes. And I think that they also convey something beautiful to us, right? I think that finding ways to make us laugh about our foibles, about our, our failings um, is really magnificent. And yeah, I don't, I don't want to apologize to anyone for that. Well, so it sounds like you've got a dream job. You get to, to watch sitcoms and then write about them and teach people about sitcoms. It's just amazing. I can't believe you exist. Uh, we, we have a final question. <laughs> we have a final question that we ask all of our guests, and we'd like to know what you're reading right now. Uh, right now, I am reading a book called My Phantoms by Gwendolyn Riley. It's a wonderful novel uh, about a woman and her very difficult relationship with her parents. Uh, conveyed through a series of extremely awkward encounters she has with them where they go out to unpleasant meals or do uh, unfun, fun activities together. And it's both 
very funny and very sad all at the same time. So I highly recommend it. That's great. We always love hearing people's recommendations. Uh, and where can people find you online, Saul? How can people follow your work? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Saul Austerlitz or my website, saulausterlitz.com. Thank you so much, Saul, for talking to us today. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.